0: Betches Media presents. I would like to speak to America's men for one minute. That slacker barista. I
1: start getting full of emotion. Now we're gonna build this new bridge here.
0: Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No, I can't.
2: Betches Up Podcast. Like, how are people surviving? I'm Sammy Sage, and welcome to the Betches Up Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, we are joined by Sarah Kensier, a scholar of authoritarianism, one of my favorite podcasters, a past guest on The Betcha Sup, and the author of the new book, They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Let's get into it. Welcome, Sarah. I am so excited to be talking to you. Congratulations on the new book. I was, I really loved it. So welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. I My first question, since I don't think we've spoken to you since – mid-pandemic. How vindicated are you feeling on a scale of one to 10?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's the worst kind of vindication, you know, when you predict that something bad is going to happen, in part because the people who are going to do the bad thing have announced it publicly and nobody uh, seems keen on stopping it. And then it, it happens. Uh, and then there's no repercussions for it. That's a that's a pretty awful feeling. Um, and I don't think I'm um, unique or alone. You know, I my field of expertise is uh, authoritarianism, corruption, etc. Um, I think I'm there with the climate scientists, with the epidemiologists and, you know, all the other people who are the no ones of uh, no one saw it coming. <laughs> oh,
2: I, lo- I love that line in your in your book. So let's let's get into your book. You wrote you wrote a, your third book, they knew and your topic is sort of the mixing of the idea of criminal conspiracies, like in the legal sense, with the propaganda messaging around conspiracy theories and sort of the two ways, the ways that these two things interact to sort of cover up for the other. Right. So what, what made you pick this as the, as the topic of your book? Cause you talk about a lot of stuff. You really could have picked a number of topics.
1: <laughs> well, part of it is because One of the things I've struggled most as I've covered, um, you know, the Trump administration, but also the broader criminal network uh, behind him, this transnational network, is that People simply would not believe what they were hearing, even though I, you know, I presented the evidence. I, I had um, all of my claims backed up because it seemed too outlandish, because it seemed too wild, but also because it was stigmatized, uh, you know, with this label of conspiracy theory, like the types of topics that I was exploring, say something like the Jeffrey Epstein case, uh, mirrored the kind of narratives that were put out, um, by propagandists, you know, like, uh, the QAnon operation, for example, Uh, you know, they were a funhouse mirror inverse uh, narrative of what was actually going on in terms of real crimes. And so what I did, and they knew was you know, draw a distinction between actual conspiracies, you know, secret plots of the powerful uh, to commit um, you know, bad acts against the public will, uh, you know, which are common, which we've seen all throughout American history from the Civil War to Watergate to Iran Contra to uh, 9-11. I mean, there's all sorts of conspiracies. This isn't, this shouldn't be uh, a unique concept. And then. Conspiracy theory, which I think of as just a neutral term. You know, if you know that there is a conspiracy, but of course you don't have all the details about it because it, you know, is obscured. It hasn't been fully investigated. Uh, you can see that it's happening. You don't fully know why. So you use the evidence that you have and you form a theory. And that's a neutral act. That's actually an act of civic engagement. I think when done in good faith. And then there's a third category of weaponized conspiracy theories, which is basically what Alex Jones and people like him do, um, where they lie, where they spread hate rhetoric, where they spread uh, propaganda based on nothing and hide behind the veneer of uh, a conspiracy theorist, of someone who's, you know, just asking questions in order to try to get legitimacy, um, you know, for that sort of behavior. And the ultimate beneficiary of all of this are the actual criminal elite actors, because one, people won't investigate their real crimes, because they're so afraid of the stigma of this label of being a conspiracy theorist or an alarmist or hysteric or or whatnot. And two, people like Jones or uh, groups like QAnon are able to muddy the narrative waters, um, you know, even further and confuse the public who are interested, I think, in getting to the bottom of corruption.
2: Did you, when you were writing this or even now, do you harbor any hopes that people who are QAnon believers will maybe read your book and feel like they were recognized or heard by the fact that you acknowledge sort of the the central tenet of the fact that there are very powerful individuals who were engaged in pedophilia, let's just be Mm -hmm. frank about it. So- And that is ultimately what QAnon believes, plus a bunch of other insane shit around that. So do you you hope that, like, this can sort of, like, bring some people back to reality by the simple fact that you're acknowledging that, like, yeah, something is up. It's just not like Democrats eating babies in a pizza parlor.
1: Yeah, I just hope that all Americans are committed to finding the truth. And it doesn't matter to me if you are involved in QAnon. It doesn't matter to me what political party you're in. You know, the truth is the truth. And I have heard in the past uh, from people involved in QAnon who found my previous book Hiding in Plain Sight useful and often somewhat clarifying in terms of illuminating how Trump uh, was involved with the Jeffrey Epstein case, how he was in fact sued in court by an Epstein victim. You know, A lot of people end up in QAnon because they go online looking for information, you know, in good faith, simply wanting to get to the bottom of this case and, you know, are sucked into this vortex uh, where they're given partial narratives false assurances, um, you know, and then, as you said, a lot of stuff that's just total bullshit, you know, like JFK Jr. rising from the dead, uh, you know, to be the vice presidential candidate, that kind of thing. Uh, And it's mixed in, though, with a search uh, for clarity about obvious ongoing state crimes documented in court um, that seem, you know, wild, like the Jeffrey Epstein-Galene Maxwell operation seems wild because it went on for decades, it implicated many of the world's most powerful people. So you would think, huh, you know, if that were really happening, the media would cover that Congress would investigate it, you know, uh, they would have been held accountable long ago. And the fact that they were not, I think, is, uh, you know, something that caused a lot of other folks to spread doubt on um, just the basic facts of the situation. Those in QAnon were not spreading doubt on it. They were actually being quite honest about that, um, while not being honest about other things, and I think taken advantage of. So, you know, in terms of my books, like, I'm not a, proselytizer, whoever wants to read them can read them. Um, I welcome anybody. But, you know, I- I'm in the same boat. Like, I'm trying to get, uh, you know, to the truth. I'm trying to find the facts, just like everybody else. Um, I try to be upfront when I don't know everything um, and, you know, show what the limitations of my knowledge are. And, you know, I-, I hope that that people feel that they can trust me um, because of that. You know, I'm doing the best I can. Right. I mean, it's
2: tough in a world where I think people sort of lack media literacy inherently. But I think what's so, I mean, what pulled me into your content at this point now, like five years ago, was the fact that everything you were looking at was available to the public and hidden, not really, like you said, hiding in plain sight, it's all in the public domain. And I think that is what is so frustrating and really does lead to the distrust because we're talking about very real corruption. And like you said, I think people who are you know curious or conspirator or they would be dubbed as conspiratorial or alarmist i think there's like a wariness that is is fair because there is a great deal of corruption especially and i mean that's obviously been increasing over the decades but something i think that is little appreciated is the idea that corruption is not, is a kitchen table issue i think people see it as like oh, it's like this obscure thing that's making some random person I've never heard of wealthier, but it's not actually affecting like a regular, the average person. Can you talk a little bit about how corruption that we don't see actually affects like the day-to-day lives of regular people?
1: Yeah, you know, this is the real trickle-down economics is corruption. Corruption actually does trickle down um, from the top to the bottom corruption is a kitchen table issue, and it's rotting the food that we eat. I mean, you see this in multiple giant industries. You see this in the fossil fuel industry. You certainly see it in the opioid uh, industry, you know, the the Sackler family and the crimes that they perpetrated. And all of that contributes, um, you know, to an environment of distrust. I think it's one of the main reasons people were hesitant to take the vaccines. It wasn't because they thought Bill Gates was going to, you know, microchip them or something. It was because they'd seen what big pharma does. They'd seen uh, these lies uh, play out in the past, um, you know, and no resolution for them. And in terms of, of political corruption, you see it through dark money, the inability of regular folks to engage in the political process uh, to participate because they, they lack the, uh, you know, entry fee. You're seeing that increasingly uh, through multiple you know, pay to play kind of professions and industries of influence and media um, and policy and so forth. And it's like the corruption at this point is so entrenched that I think Americans just think of it as the way of life, you know, especially if you were born, you know, as I was, like if you're a child of the Reagan 80s, you don't remember uh, a lot of the the policies that were there to check corruption, uh, to, you know, try to prevent rampant income inequality to try to prevent, uh, you know, propaganda, you know, stations from uh, existing on the airways. You know, there there were things in line to try to, I don't know, like level the the playing field a little bit, uh, make it more fair. They've been gone for so long uh, that that I think people have a, you know, an expectation that this is just the way it always has been, always will be, um, you know, and and should be. And unfortunately, our politicians, uh, contribute to this, you know, you see this with the, um, stock trading bans that the Democrats, especially Pelosi, you know, they want to be able to, uh, trade stocks. They want to profit off their position. That's the, the de facto, you know, mode of thought. And it's incredibly alienating, uh, to the American public. You know, everyone likes to divide things into a, Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, the truth of the matter is half the country doesn't vote. Of the half that does, half of them are not in a party. And I think it's because corruption in this sense is a unifying issue and that we're all sick of it. We're sick of being disenfranchised uh, as a nation. It's sadly, you know, I think one of the few things that's holding uh, Americans together right now.
2: Yeah, I think I think that is a good point. I think about you know even the way people sort of conduct business. You know when you're when you're coming out of college and you're getting your first job, people say, "Oh, connections are everything," and that's sort of like held up as a good piece of advice and not sort of a fundamental potential problem. If you take that to the wrong, ex- you know, the the furthest extent, which I think in a lot of cases we have. And I mean, you talk about this all the time how. Hard it is to be a journalist who's not in the DC or the New York or the, you know, California bubble and have that access. And you've mentioned, you know, I countless times that Robert Mueller years ago gave a speech speaking about the crime trifecta and sort of the overlap between government and organized crime and business. And when he had the chance to prosecute it or even, you know, When he was, you know, doing the Mueller, the Mueller investigation, he kind of backed down. Do you feel that, that these bubbles on the coast, particularly create sort of a compromise situation for almost anyone involved just
1: simply by nature of like their personal overlap? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the reasons we have a gerontocracy is because it's the same people quite literally over and over from the 1980s onward. You know, you see this with Stone, Manafort, uh, Trump, Bill Barr, etc. You know, the villains of my childhood are now the villains of, of my children's life. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of whether it's, uh, you know, limited to the coasts, it's certainly not. You know, I, I think a huge problem is wall street uh in dc you know it's these centers of power and then they come to places like where i live and you know buy us out and strip us down uh you know and and sell us for parts that's what they've been doing to st louis to cleveland i mean this has been going on a long time and i think it's spreading uh nationally so if you're on a coast you're certainly no more protected uh the only people who are protected are a very rarefied uh, class of individuals. And, you know, when it comes to Mueller, the the speech you're referring to, uh, the evolve the evolving organized crime threat is when he made in 2011, where he very accurately said that the greatest threat to Western democracy is the merging of white collar crime, organized crime and state corruption, and that the villains we should look for are not, you know, goons like the Sopranos or something, but, you know, very uh, prestigious, wealthy men and in suit and ties men, much like himself. And then, of course, as you noted, he went on to do nothing about that, and I do think that one of the reasons is because he's somebody uh, who was a witness to um, a large number of criminal plots and failed to prosecute them, including the Epstein case. He was involved in letting Epstein off the hook. Uh, he, you know, knew the dangers of Trump. They, they all knew. I mean, that's why the book's called "They Knew." Because they <laughs> all of these folks knew and. Um, A lot of it is this desire of individuals, this includes Mueller, although I think they're worse people, uh, to protect institutions over protecting the American public. They want to protect the FBI as an institution. They want to protect the DOJ as an institution. They don't actually care about the citizens of this country. They need to protect their own pasts um, from being revealed. And sometimes it's not even about, um, you know, Straight on complicity. It's about passivity. It's about standing by and letting horrible things happen, having intelligence failures, whether the run up to 9 11 or, you know, a very obvious one, uh, the run up to January 6th, in which, you know, the individuals who attacked the Capitol planned the attack uh, on the internet, you know, said where they were going to stay in hotels, made matching t shirts. And you had, you know, Michael Michael Flynn and uh, Roger Stone and Lynn Wood and all these others, you know, outwardly saying this is. Is what we're doing. Here's the date. Here's the place be there. Uh, and then you have the FBI being like, you know, yeah, I, I can't I can't find anything about that. Um, you know, in a normal country um, that would produ- provoke instant outrage from Congress. They would want to know, you know, why did the FBI fail to stop a plot that, you know, large parts of America, you know, anyone who's really paying attention knew about for months in advance. And certainly we all saw it play out on television, but instead, they're very passive as well, because they also saw the plot un- Unfolding, and they decided to, for whatever reason, uh, not intervene and allow the Capitol to be attacked and allow people to potentially in Congress, potentially be assassinated and, you know, allow people who were there uh, to die. So, you know, um, the lack of seriousness with which that is treated is, uh, is frightening to me. That's the kind of thing you do when you don't care whether your country is going to exist in the future.
2: Right. There was an anecdote in the book When you were just talking about on January 6th, where, you know, your, your husband and your kids were like really wrapped by it. And you were like, kind of like, Oh, are you watching the, the insurrection? I felt similarly that day. I remember feeling like, Oh, wait, like I, I was kind of just like working as usual with the news on, you know, and I, and I, everyone else's reaction to it was what surprised me Mm -hmm. because I was like, Oh, like this is important. Sometimes when you're like so, when you are, thinking about this all the time, you don't realize, like, what what will cause a reaction in other people. And just, you know, reading about how you felt, you realized how desensitized you were to, like, this lack of surprise, I felt very similarly. It's, like, almost hard to tell which moments are too far for, like, the average person (laughs) versus, you know, you who – We're like, okay, like, what is anyone doing anything about this coup that's happening tomorrow? Another piece that I thought was really interesting in your book was the concept, and you sort of just touched on it, of respectability politics. And I think we talk about that a lot in the context of like systemic racism and, you know, equity. But, but you also talked about how this is a shield for corruption in a lot of ways. Can you sort of elaborate on how, how respectability and of, of our politicians masks you know, the truth from coming out?
1: Yeah, this is what they cling to, to either justify their own inaction or to justify uh, and hide uh, the corruption of others. You know, you see this with various, um, you know, Trump-appointed officials like Bill Barr, for example, you know, was known as the cover up general going all the way back to the 1990s. He was known as someone who's corrupt, uh, who would, you know, cover up uh, Republican crimes to the point that even William Sapphire, a conservative, had identified him as such. When he came back in 2018, all you heard is, oh, he's an institutionalist. You know, he's a good guy. He's going to clean everything up. You know, he's very respectable. Like that is respectable to them is just, you know, wealthy, lives in D.C., and has a history within some sort of uh, storied institution. And they have the idea that the longer, you know, the amount of time you spend within an institution or within a field, that somehow makes you more immune from corruption, whereas Sadly, um, it it makes you more likely to participate in corruption because you've either witnessed uh, corrupt acts or, or, you know, have been benefiting from them yourself for such a long time. So there's a desire to keep the circle very insular. Um, You know, what I find alarming about our generation is how, you know, we are not in this sort of uh, insular corrupt gerontocracy currently uh, running the country and benefiting from it. Um, You know, we're locked out of it, but I see a lot of people our age aspiring to this, aspiring to this kind of respectability politics, you know, this conformity, the kind of topics that they'll cover, the kind of topics they'll shy away from, uh, you know, this desire for access journalism above all else. And you have to think, you know, access to what and through what means and for whose benefit, you know, there is less of a desire, I think, uh, to serve the public as a journalist. And the thing is, is I, I don't think this really encompasses our generation, because I think what's happened is that so many people have been locked out. You know, it's it's a pay-to-play industry in many ways. And, you know, if you don't have uh, an expensive college degree, if you don't live in certain areas, it's very difficult to break through. So the people who may be the best equipped uh, to tell the stories of corruption are often the least likely to get in there, which is, of course, uh, how the corrupt people want it. And then you have this, uh, you know, generation of, uh, you know, millennial Gen X sycophants uh, who, you know, are kind of buttressing uh, this overarching... Uh, you know, group of individuals and it's a, it is a sad state of affairs. I mean, everybody deserves better than this. You know, Americans deserve to be better informed. Uh, we deserve to actually get rid of the corruption at play, which historically is required. Um, you know, a free press and in a way, it's like, it's self sabotage and, and self surrender, um, on multiple levels.
2: Yeah, you, you perfect, you made a perfect segue to the next thing that, um, I really wanted to talk to, which is really how the, you know, the impact of money on journalism has limited what people are able to access. And you alluded to it earlier with when you said, you know, nobody saw it coming. No one saw these things coming. And that really is just an admission of who the speaker considers to be nobody. What do you think qualifies someone as somebody in, in this, in this day and age? How would you? Uh, I guess, describe, like, what demarcates the line between somebody and
1: nobody? I mean, to me, there is no line. We're all somebody. No, no, Uh, not to you. I mean, no, no, I mean, I mean. We live in a society. Yeah. Yeah, To them, you know, I I think in many ways, it's the traditional historic demarcation point that uh, has been there since the foundation of the United States, which is white, wealthy, Men. And then, you know, you can go down from there to people who have uh, various levels of, uh, you know, of privilege or access or power. Um, You know, women have less power than men. Uh, You know, black people have much less power than white people. So on and so forth. This is baked into, uh, you know, the founding of this country. So in a way, um, this isn't new. You know, what frustrates me about the phrase nobody saw it coming is that. People who are in the direct line of fire of a proto-autocratic regime always see it coming because they need to see it coming for their survival. And you saw that in 2016 when people were debating, you know, could Trump win? And if he wins, will he be, um, you know, withheld by by checks and balances? And the people who predicted this outcome, you know, were Black Americans, Native Americans, Muslim Americans, uh, you know, Latino Americans, gay and lesbian Americans, like everyone who Trump and the right wing... Had targeted and you know spouted inflammatory rhetoric and planned persecu- persecutory um, policies about they all believed it could happen because this is not some abstract notion this is their history this is a history of their lives their ancestors' lives that already had happened so of course it could happen again um, but you know it, it was dismissed as paranoid or conspiratorial um, you know I think we're not uh, paranoid enough. You know, I saw, I don't know, it was a few months ago, I think Webster's on Twitter put out a word that I didn't know, which is pronoid. It's the opposite of a paranoid person. It's somebody who's so credulous and so optimistic and who naturally, uh, you know, believes that things are going to turn out fine. And I think that that's the kind of uh, society that we're living in and encouraged to be part of. You know, it's this toxic um, positivity. It's this trust the plan Mentality and the folks who who don't trust the plan, the folks who you know have some uh, critical inquiry going on for the sake of their own survival, are often the ones who who the wealthy and powerful will label as nobody, so that their claims are dismissed.
2: Right. I mean, I think it's sort of. I mean, everyone I follow on Twitter saw it coming. So yeah, <laughs> <It's>, it seems <laughs> absurd. But um, so let's say you were advising like a major media outlet on how to. I guess, speak about widespread corruption and complicity from parties that they inherently trust. And let's say they were going to listen to you. How would you advise them to go about explaining this and then rebuilding the trust that they have to admit that they had broken?
1: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is back in 2016, 2017, I was asked this a lot by the mainstream media, you know, because Trump had won and they wondered, my goodness, you know, how did we not see it? What have we done wrong? We must ask this authoritarianism scholar from Missouri. Uh, But that was a fleeting, (laughs) fleeting interest in terms of actually improving things. You know, they know what they need to do. Uh, You know, they know they need to revive local news, for example. They know that people have networks of trust based in their communities. They know they need to be more straightforward in their language, call a lie a lie, call a crime a crime, Uh, not, you know, buckle to access journalism, not withhold uh, vital national security information in order to sell books. You know, we Yeah, the situation now where the people who um, often commit the crimes are the ones who then document the crimes in a book deal. You know, there's an incentive to do this. It's extremely lucrative. Meanwhile, uh, you have people like me a journalist actually out solving the crimes. And I'm not saying this like I'm some sort of super sleuth, because these are very easy crimes to solve when the perpetrators confess to them on national television and on social media. You know, it it doesn't uh, take a lot, but nonetheless, it takes the will to actually just simply say what has happened, what is observable in the public domain. And I've been willing to do that. Our officials have not. So the roles have really been inverted, and it's gotten much worse. Like, I don't see a great interest in our national media to remedy this problem. You know, another thing I recommended they do is talk to journalists from authoritarian states, uh, you know, from kind of mafia states, uh, you know, like Russia back then at the time, which has now moved, uh, more totalitarian, um, you know, and see, like, how do they conduct journalism in these conditions? Like, what, what do they think the purpose of journalism is? It's, um, it's very frustrating because I think that they just were playing lip service uh, to the issue and, and they don't actually want it to change because it's it's beneficial for them to remain in their places of privilege and wealth. And any uh, real, uh, you know, journalistic investigation of corruption is going to threaten their own positions. So they'll just kind of acknowledge the problem without actually doing anything to fix
0: it.
2: Right. That That's what I think is sort of the one very unique thing about very wealthy people and companies is that if you know that they have unlimited funds and they choose not to do something or to do something, you know that that was a clear priority. It was not driven by a resource issue. It was not driven by an access issue. Any journalist, I'm sure, in in Russia would talk to NBC if they want, if, or do an interview or, you know, they would speak about these things. And the fact that they have the money and the ability and the clout to do that and they don't really says everything about their priorities.
1: Yeah, it's about narrative control. You know, I just want to emphasize, because I brought up money before, that it's not solely about money. You know, and you certainly see this with Trump, because a Trump scandal or a Trump crime uh, sells just as well as Trump sycophancy or, you know, Trump minutia, which is often what uh, papers trade in. And they would avoid major, major criminal activity. They avoided his ties to Epstein. They avoided covering his lifelong ties to the mafia, which had been covered previously uh, by the media in the 80s and 90s. Like, there's a wealth of material in the public domain to work with in terms of court documents, in terms of articles that had already, uh, you know, come out that could be brought up. They purposefully chose to ignore that, to ignore the criminal ties, the well documented criminal ties of his immediate network, uh, people who were later indicted like Manafort and Stone and Bannon and so forth, um, in order to cover up crime. With scandal, and that's not about making money. They'd actually make a lot more money if they would dig deep um, into this criminal network. Uh, you know, but they don't want to do that. They want to maintain narrative control and they want to protect uh, this these elite criminal players. And for what reason, I'm not completely sure. I think it really varies outlet to outlet, uh, publisher to publisher, but they certainly seem unified, uh, in their quests. There's, you know, anomalous era of American accountability. You know, I write about them a bit and they knew there are time periods where it's sort of like the world opens up a little and we get to gaze, uh, you know, into that criminal abyss. And I think, um, you know, the late eighties, early nineties was one. And more recently, I think, you know, 2016 to about early 2019, was another. You began to see real investigatory uh, journalism and some, you know, uh, state investigations of the circle as well. And then it just ends. And then you're just fed, you know, blather and and gossip and inertia and endless pleas to just be patient because things were just going to naturally work themselves out somehow as they openly plot a coup. Um, and you know, that somebody openly plotting a, a coup that sells a lot of papers. Uh, they didn't want to talk about that until after the, uh, attempted coup had, you know, already, uh, led to an attack on the Capitol.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think back to 2017, maybe what, or maybe even earlier when, you know, there was that affidavit where, where a 13, you know, there's this witness that says Trump raped a 13 year old in, you know, in an Epstein scenario right. or whatever. And that was barely ever talked about. I remember posting that on my own, like, Instagram story and people being like, what is this? Like, how did you find this? Is this real? It's like, yeah. And, and it's a little sad that, um, me, a random girl on Instagram is like the one mm-hmm. informing people when this is not in the major outlets, or if it is, it's, it's not central in any way. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe a commentator will mention it if, but that's not under the control of the, you know the outlet, but speaking to your point about money, I'm glad you brought that up. So, mu- so money is is you would assume that would be the incentive, but that doesn't really bear out when you look at some of their reporting and how much more intriguing it really could be if they were to go deeper. But there, but it does also feel like money has been used sort of as a a barrier to the truth coming out, not even in like a straight up bribery way, but. Let's talk about, like, two, two pieces you brought up which were incredibly interesting were paywalls and you also alluded to it earlier, uh, journalists saving up their scoops for book deals. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how money is sort of used as an instrument to, like, limit the information that's out there at any given time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's been a change in the media landscape since early 2021. Uh, you know, well, back in 2016, 2017, you know, the early parts of the Trump era, I was able to put together all of the information uh, that was in my book, hiding in plain sight, because it was, in fact, hiding in plain sight. It was not paywalled. It was not particularly uh, difficult to find. I mean, it took time and effort, but it was uh, there, and it was certainly affordable. Um, in like about the spring of 2021, you know, almost every mainstream site, every local news site began to erect a paywall. And it's a paywall that seems designed to keep people out, you know, because I do think people would pay for the news, just as they used to pay for print newspapers back in the day, they would pay like a dollar, they would maybe pay like 50 cents for one article, they're not going to pay like a $50 $100 year long subscription for some paper, they, you know, they're probably never going to, read again. Um, And I understand why, especially the the smaller local sites, you know, they need to do something to make money or they're going to go under, you know, this problem has been with us for a long time. So I do have sympathy in that respect. But what has happened is that, you know, information now just floats around the Internet in the forms of headlines, in the forms of screenshotted paragraphs, in the forms of individual sentences, you know, decontextualized, no no date, no author, uh, sometimes no idea where it is. And meanwhile, as that's happening, as you're getting partial truths uh, from the paywalled world, disinformation is free you know, uh, Fox News is free, like Facebook memes are free, uh, next door posts are free. And so people during a time of enormous trauma and crisis, you know, not just, uh, you know, the rise of autocracy threats in the Capitol, but a pandemic are trying to get information about all of these, um, you know, at- atrocious happenings from very unreliable places, because they simply cannot afford to get them Elsewhere, and that is terrible for democracy. It is terrible for uh, society. Um, you know, but I think it kind of shows a world of journalism in which the journalists are writing much more for each other and for their corporations than they are to inform the public. I mean, I think this is particularly true with COVID information. I often struggle to get basic information now because it's paywalled. You know, there'll be some headline, like, you know, the one thing you need to know to not get COVID this year and not from some tabloidy site from like, um, you know, a like The Guardian or something like that. And and I can't get to it. And I'm thinking, well, you know, should I pay to know what thing is going to kill me? And I'm like, no, you know what, never mind. <laughs> because, you know, after it doesn't bear out anyway. I'll find it somewhere, maybe, maybe I will. Or maybe, I, you know, that'll be what ultimately leads to my demise. You really don't know. And then the other thing that's happening is the world of book publishing, basically being used, I think, as a tacit, Um, NDA. You know, NDAs are how Trump and just, you know, kind of high power mafia networks in general uh, function to silence uh, witnesses or victims of their crimes. You know, they they sign a document, they get a payout, and so on. The book publishing industry is essentially functioning that way, because people know that they can work with the Trump camp, they can witness uh, a multitude of horrific things. And as long as they write a narrative of it that emphasizes scandal over crime that doesn't delve deep that doesn't give history that doesn't give context it's just sort of like a you know tabloidy first-person account like my time working with uh, you know Melania or whatnot um, that they will get rewarded that it is lucrative that they will get a book deal and this is also this mentality is transferred not just for people who work uh, within his campaign or administration but into people um, you know working for newspapers where despite the paywall they don't seem to see uh, the point of Articles as getting people to read them. You know, it's just they're putting out filler and then waiting for the day the book arrives that tells you the news of a year, a year and a half ago. And that is incredibly uh, damaging to democracy and unbelievably beneficial to not only um, elite criminals, but to the failures uh, in the DOJ and the FBI and other institutions who refuse to act and who bank on inertia and who bank on us forgetting what happened in real time and lacking a sense of urgency. All of this contributes to a sense, and I I see this when I talk to people who like Trump and they vote for Trump, they're like, well, you know, if this was really important, the media would cover it right now. You know, uh, the government would be after them. If this was really an attempted coup, uh, the DOJ would, it would have struck immediately to make sure it didn't happen again. You know, I've seen people over time change their minds. You know, they start out thinking Biden is a legitimate president, but because of the combination of you know right wing propaganda and inaction toward people who committed the worst attack on the Capitol since 1812, they start to think, well, wait, it couldn't have really been an attack because if it were, people would do something. And I saw the same thing with the Mueller probe. I saw the same thing, you know, with a lot of really obvious state crimes. That inaction is a gift, and the um, delayed reporting of the mainstream media uh, is an accompaniment to that gift.
2: If someone says that to you, like in a conversation, what do you say back? Sa- says why, if they, if they if it, was, if it was really that bad, wouldn't they investigate? Wouldn't there be an investigation or something like that?
1: I explain how this whole system works. I mean, you know, like I, I work in the media, you know, I'm a, I'm a traitor to my cause or whatever, but I don't think I am because I think the role of a journalist is to serve the people. And if I have to, you know, tell the tactics of the media and why they're doing this and about, you know, money and power and access and what kind of value systems... Uh, you know, folks uh, working in big corporations in New York or DC have, you know, I'll explain it. And I'll just hope that, you know, people will understand uh, and will believe me because, you know, that's the thing is the general public approval of the media is very low. And a lot of people who work in journalism bring this up as kind of a civic crisis. Like, oh, my God, you know, people don't trust journalists anymore. Like, what a tragedy. But I'm thinking, like, have you earned their trust? Like, have you actually tried to do anything to merit their trust? Or do you think that you, by having the title of journalist, Inherently deserve it, and I think everybody should be, you know, forced to earn trust. Whether you are a member of Congress, you know, whether you are a writer, whatever, you know, you have to show your your bona fides. And if you're just doing this for some sleazy, low down reason, you know, I, I think people have the right to know that as well.
2: Yeah, I was reading Maggie Haberman's book or the first <laughs> chapter of it. And she mentions Howard Rubinstein in the first chapter, and she doesn't even say that she's connected. There's no like, uh, disclosure. And she had disclosed something else, like in, like within a page of that, where it was like, by the way, I worked for so-and-so. And it's like, you're not going to include this connection, this very clear connection that like, and she's like the preeminent Trump person.
1: Yes. By the way, you should, uh, you should look at the cover of that book. Look at the subtitle Horrible. of her book. Like, look at look the at cover. The is like glorifying. Book. It's like glorifying him. <laughs> it's glorifying, him. but it's also like literally almost the exact same subhead that I saw it. I like did like a triple take, that I had a nighting in plain sight. I did like a triple take. I can't remember what she did. I had the invention of Trump and the erosion of America. She had like the creation of Trump and the breaking of America. I, I don't know. i was something I'm sure she knows. I have it on my Kindle, which I have <laughs> here in like, case I, I mean, wanted to this reference This is another um, yeah. like funhouse mirror moment. But yeah, I'm glad that, that you brought that up because I have not read it and I was very curious whether she was going to address the fact that her mother, you know, worked for uh, Howard Rubenstein, who is, you know, a power broker, preeminent PR man uh, for Trump, for Kushner, for Epstein, for Adnan Khashoggi, a major figure in the Trump world, and for Rupert Murdoch, and you know that matters. the The Trump fold, the immediate people within it, are close family friends of the the Haberman family. You know that includes Giuliani. It includes Roger Stone. You know Roger Stone used to wish her kids. Uh, happy birthday on Twitter. Like if Roger Stone knew when my kids' birthdays were, you know, I'd be locking up my house. But, you know, we all do things differently. But yeah, she's a perfect example of that. And the thing is, It's like, just because you're born very wealthy and privileged and powerful and whatnot, it doesn't mean you have to write terrible books or commit terrible actions. Like, look at Ronan Farrow. You know, he used uh, the situation of his birth, you know, his own privilege to expose a criminal network, you know, to to talk about Me Too, to talk about Black Cube and so on. So, you know, she had a choice. It could actually be a fascinating book if she actually were to investigate how Rubenstein PR truly worked. But to do that, of course she would implicate her family. She'd implicate her mother. She'd implicate her own, you know, career path, um, going from that world to the world where her dad works at the New York Times. Um, you know, I, I try to, I, I don't like the pile-ons. I don't like the, you know, sort of mob attacks on her. You know, I, I think a, a lot of journalists face this and it's uh, it can be frightening to deal with. So I certainly am not encouraging that. But I do encourage people to look back at her work, not just at the New York Times, but all the way back to Politico, because she was sowing the seeds of a Trump presidency all the way back in 2011. She was trying to make this seem like a plausible reality. And her main partner, and I stress partner, not source, in doing this was Roger Stone. And so there's a whole uncovered story here. And it's interesting to me the way the mainstream media has reacted kind of in fear, I think, toward her. Like, they absolutely don't want to bring this up. They don't want to criticize her. And I don't think they're afraid of, like, Maggie Haberman, the, the individual. I think they're afraid of Rubenstein, even, you know, he's dead. But uh, the network lives on. You know, that was not just a PR firm. Like, that was a, you know, elite criminal cover-up, you know, image rehab network, you, like even in stories about Jeffrey Epstein, if you read them from New York magazine, you know, Howard Rubenstein, like, appears midway through to be like, you can't talk about that. And, they, you know, and the writer of those stories would even admit that, like, that's the kind of cover-up uh, network that her family was involved in. So, yeah, I'd read that book, an honest book, um, in a heartbeat. It's not the book she wrote, though.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny because you said people do pile on her, and I agree with you, but they pile on her for the totally wrong reason and yeah. it's 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 fascinating to watch it's it's a it's almost a parallel to the crime the scandaling the scandal covering up crime the way that that's how she reports that's how people react to her mm-hmm. it's she's a very interesting piece of the puzzle
3: of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homeshef.com/feverdream. That's homeshef.com/feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. homeshef.com/feverdream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert.
0: When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. No more tension between craving meat, but not wanting to eat so much of it, or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness, and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S dot com. Just on that note, without
2: having, you know, the average person doesn't, you know, have all these, these facts kind of up in their head from their... You know, they're very lucky nation with this. <laughs> I envy yeah.
1: them so, but yeah. Exactly.
2: So how can like an, how can an average person become more media literate on their own? How do they know whose column they're reading? Whose parents, though, that, that journalist, you know, th- it's all that stuff is sort of, you know, how does one educate themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I feel like we're, we're in a dark ages now, because of paywalls, because of the closure of independent outlets, because of the elimination of a lot of investigative reporting teams who are doing good jobs, for example, BuzzFeed lost uh, their team, the closure of local news, like it does lead people to be like, you know, where do I even look for news, you know, much less analysis of the news and you know, who is accurate and who's not. You know, the, a benefit to our time is that you don't necessarily have to get your news from journalists. You can get it from historians, political scientists, people who have specialized expertise. Like if I'm, you know, analyzing the war uh, in Ukraine, you know, I look for people who've studied Ukraine for decades, who didn't just like find it on a map um, in February. So I think it's great that people like that are out, you know, writing for the public, hopefully not behind a paywall, answering the questions of the public. There are alternate sources of information, but frequently throughout this year, I felt like it is it is very difficult to uh find out what's going on by watching the news on cable or reading it. Like I feel like I'm mostly kind of just scanning for propaganda and then comparing it with primary sources, you know, the statements from officials, court documents, and stuff like that. Who the hell has time to do that? Like, absolutely no one. I mean, this is my job, that's why I have the time. But somebody working a nine to five, uh, I don't know. I'm just hoping that there's some kind of, um, you know, I I know I'm not the only person who has this frustration with how uh, journalism is going, the direction it's headed. I hope that there is a more equitable way to bring news to the public, something where they could, you know, click on an article for a very small fee, like under a dollar, purchase that article, like, you know, kind of iTunes style, how that used to work. I think that would really change things. The problem is, I I don't think corporations want it, even though it would be popular and it it would be profitable, because it it makes them relinquish uh, narrative control. And we're back where we were in, you know, the 2016 to 2018 era, where suddenly, uh, a large number of Americans were aware of uh, corruption schemes and, you know, transnational organized crime plots that had been, you know, effectively hidden from them uh, for a very long time beforehand.
2: Yeah, you're very right about that. I do think people would pay per article, or they would pay for like a bundle.
1: Yeah, you know, a bundle for sure. A bundle yeah.
2: would be ideal if we could get that. <laughs> what you were just saying, sort of about you know, scanning for propaganda and you know, like narratives that that don't necessarily portray reality. Something that I think you've been beating the drum on for a long time is the blue state, red state framing and why that is deeply dangerous and why talks of secession are actually more problematic than the divisions between let's call them Republicans and Democrats. But in reality, most people are just sort of like, don't know what the fuck is going on.
1: Yeah, most people are just pissed off. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's a personal thing for me, you know, living in St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Louis is a, you know, traditionally Democrat voting city, heavily black city in a state that is, you know, held hostage by a radical right-wing GOP legislature. And we're, of course, right at the border of uh, the Mississippi River, the border of Illinois, which is the quote-unquote blue state. And so, you know, this dynamic that there's some sort of great difference where if I cross a bridge, you know, if I go 20 minutes away from my house, I suddenly become some different type of person. I become a quote, blue state person, even though if I cross that bridge, I actually end up in a county that voted for Trump. Because that's the thing, you know, there are no red states, there are no blue states, every state is purple, as I've been saying for a decade, you know, America's purple, like a bruise, because we are held together Uh, you know, in our pain. And I think um, the incredible frustration of the last few years, particularly the pandemic, the different policies about that within states and just being inside looking at a screen looking at caricatures of other Americans not getting out and seeing them not traveling, uh, not encountering people in real life it has led to people embracing these stereotypes thinking that the governments of various hostage states it's what I call you know a state like mine which is very mixed ideologically I mean there are of course very conservative people here it's also you know very liberal people here you know and that's true. Elsewhere, but the way our system is set up is our votes basically don't matter, and we're not unique. You know, Texas is like this. Ohio is a notoriously gerrymandered like this. Um, but they they mistake the view of the government uh, for the will of the people, and that's simply not the case. And they stop looking at us as fellow Americans, as people who are in the same struggle. And then you have very exploitative, powerful people trying to break us up. Like that is what I think the ultimate game plan is for Trump um, and his backers, it's not fascism. Like, fascism is just a stepping stone to the ultimate plan, which is, I think, partition. You know, breaking the United States up um, into smaller uh, states run by oligarchs and plutocrats meant to just extract resources, uh, none of them free. There will be no blue paradise. There will be no red paradise. There will be wars between them because wars are profitable. I think that's the model that they see. They saw in the former Yugoslavia, the former Soviet Union, where you know a lot of these people made a windfall uh, in the '90s, and they don't have any loyalty to this country. You know that's the only reason I don't call Trump a fascist, even though he uses fascist rhetoric and, and fascist tactics at times. Is because to be a fascist, you have to be loyal to your country. You want to embody it. You want to expand it. He wants to destroy it, and so does Steve Bannon, um, and you know, and many of the individuals around him. And they have a network that is willing to do it. And they do not have a strong opposition within Congress and within our institutions. You know, the the fact that the Biden administration is letting so many fundamental American institutions rot, things like the Postal Service, you know, very necessary, very uncontroversial. You know, he'll let that die out through uh, Louis DeJoy, where folks still can't get their mail, they still can't vote by mail. Again, that's what you do when you don't think your country will survive or should survive. That's the way they're behaving. Like, if they're unaware that this is the way that they're behaving, well, now they know. Uh, it's very alarming to me as someone who has studied uh, state collapse, um, you know, for my entire career.
2: Let's say ju- there had been some quick accountability for January 6, either before the inauguration or like very, pretty quickly after. Maybe if they hadn't said they were going to put a witness on the stand and then write a piece of paper that was (sighs) remains one of the most frustrating hours of my life um so do do you think that that would have changed things like had we caught Lindsey Graham in his like this is enough mood like is it just that like the time allowed people to kind of just like get let it go
1: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. The the passage of time was the fatal blow. You know, after January 6th, the country was pretty united in that that was a, a horrific event. And many members of Congress were pushing for the second impeachment. Pelosi did not want to do it. That was clear at the time. There's now, of course, one of these delayed books uh, full of realizations that go behind the scenes and say, yeah, she actively tried to stop him from being impeached for uh, plotting a coup and an attack, which is a real interesting little piece of information there. But the thing is, it's like, Trump was never that popular. This right-wing extremist agenda is not popular. Most Americans don't want this. There's always going to be a fringe that does. There's always going to be people whose minds won't be changed. But, you know, we are held hostage to the will of a tyrannical minority. You know, we see it at the Supreme Court as well. And they've been allowed, uh, you know, to get not just power, but sort of conferred legitimacy by the refusal of institutions to hold them accountable, which then makes it seem as if they haven't done anything wrong. I think if they had extended the timing of the uh, second impeachment, if it had gone on for months and months and months and dug into the entire background of the plot, you know, um, stop the steal, for example, as the slogan coined, and 2016, when Roger Stone promised a bloodbath if Trump was not made president. Like, this was all old news. This all had, you know, very necessary historic context that needed to be included. Instead, they made it one week long. Uh, They shut it down. And then they said, oh, we need to move forward. We need to move on. But here we are with, you know, Trump having fascist rallies and threatening coup two with all the same operatives, you know, Flynn and Bannon, I guess Bannon finally got indicted. But, you know, the rest of them are all out there actively plotting the sequel. um, And that was preventable.
2: Yeah, I think it brings us back to the fact that Nancy Pelosi, Diane Feinstein, they're all too rich. And part of the issue, part of the reason for that is that they are old and their money has been able – their money has multiplied in the stock market that they're able to buy from the stocks they're able to buy from their inside yeah. information. And like they're just – they're too rich, honestly. Like they're too insulated and like they have too many connections and they don't want to feel awkward at their country club. And it's just – very frustrating to, it's
1: like, can, we need a new, fresh generation. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's, it's very frustrating because, like, if you look at the two parties, you know, the, the Republican Party is much younger. Like, they're training the future generation. And unfortunately, the future generation is like, you know, DeSantis and uh, Ted Cruz and, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and whatnot. On the Democratic side, the most promising people are shut down and suppressed, um, you know, whether it's AOC or Katie Porter or others, people who understand policy, people who are good communicators. Uh, they're held back by their own leadership. Like, this is a vichy democratic leadership and until that changes uh we're going to be in you know much worse straits than we need to be because i do think there are good folks out there who could make a a positive impact on this they're just not able to utilize the power they have because that power is uh ceaselessly taken from them
2: yeah and really all you need is like a quick chapter on 1930s germany and the whole story is already there but, yeah,
1: unfortunately, um, yeah, unfortunately.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah. I so appreciate, you know, your book, your everything you do, and just, you know, your voice and how you are s- unafraid to put everything out there. So everyone should check out Sarah's book. They knew if you are interested in the mix of, cons- of government corruption, state corruption, corporate corruption. And if you are interested in learning how that leads people astray in their thinking, gets them following propaganda, please check out her book. It is really one of the most insightful reads um, in a long time. And thank thank you you so so much much for your time.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: If you guys like this episode, I have something that you are really going to like. It is the new morning announcements premium edition. It is called Extra Extra. In it, I am every two weeks going to be doing major deep dives, investigating topics that really don't get as much attention. You know I love the corruption beat, the coup beat. I love looking into white-collar crimes and seeing the things that they're not telling us, like that there's a colonial woman on the wing, perhaps. But really, it's a very fun show. It's about a half hour to 45 minutes every two weeks, and you can do a free trial if you want to see what it's like, see if you like it. You can find it under Apple Podcasts in the regular Morning Announcements feed, or if you are a Spotify listener, you can find it by searching Morning Announcements Extra Extra, and you can subscribe there to that specific feed, where you can listen to both the Morning Announcements and Extra Extra. I know it's not the most user-friendly thing, but I appreciate it. I appreciate any reviews, uh, ratings, shares on your Instagram story. And of course, we'd love to welcome you into the Geneva chat. If you are on Geneva, go to the Betches group chat and you will find the Betches sub group chats in there. If you can't find it, feel free to DM me. I'll send you a link. Until the end of democracy, I'm Sammy Sage and this is the Betches sub podcast. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales Pico, and Rebecca Sausmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sausmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at subpod at betches.com. Betches.